The thought which has been going through my head uh, recently is the idea of, um, of the church having permission to speak. If you're into titles, call it permission to speak. All right? Um, and that's really what I'm sort of agonizing about. And I, and I do so as someone, as I said before, who has been not only within the, the embrace of the Christian church, but actually someone who has been released from that embrace to partner with people beyond the church. In the average week, my diary will probably now be filled with as many non-Christian interactions and encounters as it might be with Christians, which I'm quite happy about, frankly. And so I'm trying to work out this whole issue of permission to speak. Um, and it's a very hard thing for the Christian church to get that. Actually, if we're going to say anything to the culture, you have to get their permission to say something to them. That you can't just bark at people or shout at them or assume that we have an automatic right to say our piece to the culture. I think a lot of evangelism, Christian apologetics, or even Christian ministry makes that assumption. Charismatic, Pentecostal, conservative Christian engagement works from the premise of uh, our being around for a long time, our being the people under God, our being prophetic, and therefore society had better listen to us, otherwise God's going to get them. Um, and I think we haven't really noticed that the world has changed, and it just does not work like that anymore. It's a little bit like the shift which takes place, I guess, between a parent and a child. My two uh, children, um, my wife and I have two, two grown-up kids. Well, she had them, I claim them. And so our son is something like 28, our daughter is 25. And uh, I can't quite work out precisely when it happened, but at some point... I knew I couldn't just tell them what to do. I had to negotiate. In fact, at some point, I had to begin to say to my son, well, look, if you need my advice, ask for it, and I'll tell you. If you don't ask me for it, I'll keep stomp. So the rule is, he's an adult, she's an adult, they're both married people. If they want advice, they'll come and say, Dad, what do you think about this? And then we will say, blah, 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 blah. You know, occasionally we'll give advice, but it's, you can leave it or take it. So I, I'm not sure precisely when it happened that I was no longer able to say, go to your room. Read the book. Switch off the telly. But the contract has changed. And it is very difficult to tell precisely at what point in the church's relationship with its culture, that relationship and that mandate changed, but it definitely has. And I guess you will know the story just as well as me, um, that the influence of uh, philosophical thinking, which emanated out of the Christian church across Europe, and which we later regarded as the Enlightenment, has made some significant uh, shifts in the culture in that regard. So, 
I quite enjoyed the challenge which was presented to me in preparing the paper for Cambridge last Thursday evening in talking about human rights and the gospel. And one of the things I was reminding myself uh, by some of the stuff I was reading was just how some of the key thinkers pushed European culture to a place where the idea that people had descending laws was removed by the concept of ascending laws. In other words, descending laws mean God has said, God gives us the rules and we do it. Ascending law says, "Uh -uh, uh uh-uh, uh-uh, we don't do God. We decide, the consensus decides what is right for Europe, and the consensus decides if we do it or not. And a number of things have influenced our ability to do so. So if you read uh, people like uh, John Stuart Mill, and particularly his classic book on liberty, every Christian reader should read that. Because In a sense, what John Stuart Mill says is, our only real responsibility in life is to do whatever we want to do as long as it doesn't harm another person. So if you have ever heard the kind of phrase which says, mind your own business, if you ever wondered why it is that across Europe increasingly people keep to themselves and make up their own laws and have little relationship with others and individualism has really come to impact people's understanding of discipleship that's the stream from which some of these thoughts have flown or take for example Tom Paine's The Rights of Man classic piece of work in which the centerpiece of his proposition was this every generation has to determine for itself what is right So, you cannot have dead people telling us what is right today. And therefore the laws which dead people made 200 or 300 or 500 years ago is now irrelevant for us today because our responsibility, our right today is to determine what is right for us today. So there is no continuity, there is no meta-narrative, there is no overarching moral universe which says a generation of a thousand years ago can still tell us how to behave today. And we have no right to expect that what we say is right today, either by social customs or by legislation, will therefore apply in 20 years time. Each generation effectively has a sovereign right to determine what is right for them now. Which is why um, a European constitution does not need to reflect a Christian heritage if today's generation says that's not relevant. And so these are just some of the influences. So the great cry of the 19th century of, and the 18th century the of freedom, liberty, fraternity became the new sovereignty the idea that God or a feudal system through kings and queens and lords and lettered people that these people can tell the rest of us what to do was swept away it's no accident that the same person who um, uh, you know, put up the uh, the, 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 the 
Statue of Liberty also put up the tower in, in the Eiffel Tower in Paris. And the complementarity between what happened in Europe and what happened in the American War of Independence, where the new orthodoxies became freedom, liberty, was no accident. You know, even the American Declaration of Independence, which many evangelicals are wrestling with and see as somehow a mandate from God. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, etc., etc. Even that statement was not a theocratic statement. It's a libertarian statement. Yeah, it's true. And America is not founded on Christian principles. That's true. That's absolutely true. It's founded on libertarian principles. That's why church and state are separate Hmm. in the American Constitution. And this is why in America, when people are still saying, they've taken God out of the classrooms. Well, actually, constitutionally, he was never in the classroom. And there is therefore a significant tension as we seek to work out where did this drift take place between descending laws and principles and ascending laws and principles. Of course, the great battle of um, rationalism and science versus the superstition of church and God became a very, very different, uh, um, uh, difficult challenge for Christian faith. So even now, if you are asking for what I would describe as a ceasefire between people of faith and people of non-faith in the public square, it's a very difficult thing to negotiate. Cardinal Murphy O'Connor, the um, cardinal of uh, the Catholic Church in the UK, had just finished a series of lectures, very high-profile lectures, about Christian faith in the public square. The first lecture he had was a gentleman you may or may not remember who goes by the name of Tony Blair. He had a very stonking lecture about faith in the, uh, in, in the, global, in the global context. Um, the, uh, the Cardinal did his piece on Thursday Night Gone, I think it was. There was a very interesting appeal from the Cardinal, which came out on prime time radio Friday morning, which basically, yesterday, which basically said, we need... Uh, a period of rational dialogue, he said, between people of faith and non-faith so that we can share our common concerns for the well-being of society. And so they interviewed the cardinal, making this appeal for what I call in my own words a ceasefire. The very next voice was Richard Dawkins, basically saying, we can't have a ceasefire. We can't have this peace because as long as religion is in the public square, it's not rational. It should be submitted to the laws of science. Therefore, we can't take it seriously. So even then, here comes a very high profile faith leader in the UK appealing for common space. And the rationalism of this uh, dedicated atheist um, is, is denying that right worlds apart. We're just apparently worlds apart. So in this context, the idea of justice is separated from righteousness. And of course we know from the Old Testament that you cannot separate righteousness and rightness. The same word for justice is the same word for holiness at its root. 
And we know that if you seek to execute justice in the absence of righteousness, you end up with a very cold, harsh, mechanical, mechanistic response. This is one of the reasons why many Christians right across Europe uh, doubt the usefulness of the concepts of human rights. Because human rights, as it has come down to us for the last 60 years, has been mediated or communicated through totally rational, secular values, materialistic values, devoid of God. And we are rather suspicious that anything which leaves out God is therefore egocentric and humanly driven, and therefore we are nervous about human rights in the absence of God. It's one of the key things which will challenge us again and again in the future, how you bring God and human rights together. And this massive separation is because we have forgotten that justice tempered with morality and righteousness is a very hard thing to achieve just by law alone. And so the separation between the values of the church and Christian faith and what the public square demands of us is a very tenuous one indeed. I think there's another huge challenge which comes to us as a result of all of this. And it is the tension between the idea of theocracy and democracy. Now, it's a little bit of a bee in my bonnet, as we say in England. It's something which I keep going on about. Because a lot of the political activity Christians are now engaged with across Europe and the States is premised on the idea that we are in a theocracy. That is, the rule of God applying in our culture through laws and legislation and customs and social norms. But somehow because Europe has a Christian heritage, God is still in control of Europe and therefore we expect everybody to behave as though everybody is a Christian. And there's a lot of Christian lobbying which is working very hard to see the reversal of legislation which is anti-God and to see more and more legislation which is influenced by Christian values and Christian thinking. Let me tell you, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Now this will shock some of you to hear me saying that. It will certainly shock a lot of people in the UK to hear me say that because a lot of what the Evangelical Alliance has done I think very well I think what a lot of our member bodies have done over the years and very well, very respected organisations have been about political lobbying for many years and we do it well but I think increasingly our political activity in a liberal democracy will be prophetic action, not transforming action. And if we are expecting political engagement to bring transformation to the nation, uh, we're going to have a long wait. 
Our response in Parliament as we hold up Christian values is to be a restraint, is to be an influence, is to be a challenge, is to be a profit at the door. I do hope that we make incremental input into parliamentary processes, humanizing it, keeping it away from extremism, checking secularization in the legislative process. But I doubt that we will see in the foreseeable future significant new steps in Christian influence in politics or legislation as it relates to issues of morality, ethics, even genetic engineering, uh, and, and so forth. I'll tell you for why. It's because uh, we're in a liberal democracy. And... Tom Paine rules okay. Each generation works out what is right, and the consensus determines how politicians must behave. It's been that case for a long time. So there's a big difference between a theocracy and a democracy under God's sovereignty. You will notice that rhymes very well theocracy, democracy sovereignty and I made it up I made it up Uh, so that um, our task is not primarily changing laws our task primarily is changing minds and hearts and values You know, when Wilberforce saw the overturn of the slave trade, he said something very important. He said, God has set before me two tasks. One, the abolition of the slave trade. Secondly, the reformation of manners. Don't know what that means precisely. It's a great idea. It's the equivalent of what Martin Luther King, the American Baptist civil rights uh, movement leader, called a revolution of values. The abolition of the slave trade and the reformation of manners needed to go together. You know, before they abolished slavery, they had to do a massive task of changing minds. They had to convince people that black people were human. That was philosophical argument. It was theological revision. And it took years for some of the best minds to say to some very good minds, black people are human too, whether they've been baptized or not. Secondly, they had to argue hard on economic realities. These were rational arguments which said, this institution is a waste of time because it's going to die anyway, as we know it. And thirdly, they had to argue, this thing called slavery is immoral and must be destroyed. The reformation of manners, which is why you have Wilberforce not just doing abolition of the slave trade, but doing a tremendous amount through a vast number of societies and organizations to educate, to challenge values, to get rid of drunkenness in the streets, to get rid of debauchery in parliament. The reformation of values. Because unless the values were changed, people would only vote in certain ways. Unless you saw, as 
A slave owner, and by the way, in the 18th, 19th century, if somebody called you a West Indian, you weren't black. You were a slave owner in the Caribbean. That's, that's what, that was a West Indian in the 18th century. So they had to convince the West Indians that slavery was wrong. They had to change their minds through campaigns and arguments. It was a dialogue. It was a conversation. It was a shift of values. I think we make a significant mistake in Europe if we assume that shouting loud in the public square is going to change values. We have to do a lot more than that. And some of it is about the agenda for change I was talking about before the break. But I think the only way we negotiate a kingdom culture across Europe is by recognizing that we have to gain permission to speak. Well, I just say that this is an audition. So that was a very long introduction to the key points I want to make. And the key point I want to make is this, that whenever God's people spoke out beyond their own culture, they always had permission to speak. You see, the 8th century prophet spoke powerfully to Jewish people in ways which sometimes didn't seem as if they were asking permission. They just said it. Why? Because they were speaking within the theocracy, within the agreements, within the covenant people. But whenever God's people spoke beyond the covenant people, they needed permission. And the difficulty with us in our prophetic responses is that we think we can take a theocratic arrangement and put it in a democracy and get away with it. We can't. We can't. Politicians will not vote like evangelists or pastors. They're going to vote like politicians because they want to get back in four years' time. Let me draw some principles in my early thinking process which may or may not be helpful to you. I think... The first thing I'd want to say about permission to speak is that permission is a risky business. There's a woman, a Jewess, became a queen in Persia. The word on the streets outside the palace gates was that her people were destined for genocide. She had to change the king's mind. It was a high risk. She did the fasting, she did the praying, she mobilized her people beyond the palace gates and there came a momentous moment when she needed consent to speak. And that permission was the difference between life and death. Not just for her people, but for her. There was no way Queen Esther could have barged in to the royal presence for two reasons. One, it was against the law. Perhaps even more importantly, her predecessor behaved like that and lost her job. And you need to remember that Esther was there because the previous queen got past her station, didn't know her place, didn't know how to do protocol. So for Esther to do the protocol was doubly important. It wasn't just the law, it was her predecessor, the previous queen who she replaced, didn't do protocol. And sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, 
Permission to speak is a dangerous game. If we're going to dialogue with our culture, sometimes it's going to have to be a matter of life and death. Sometimes we put ourselves in places where the risks are high. I sometimes meet with Christian leaders who say, oh, we're not doing the media because they tell lies and they misrepresent. We will just preach God's word in our pulpit. Well, do. Fine. And so talk to yourself and see how much you change the world. But if you're going to get into the arteries of the culture, you have to take the risk. You have to take the risk of being misrepresented, lied upon, uh, and abused. I remember about four or five years ago, maybe more, maybe eight years ago now, I was preaching at the Christian Socialist Movement um, uh, Sunday service. And the Christian Socialist Movement has a very close relationship to the Labour Party. And the year when I was speaking at that Sunday morning worship uh, they were in the, uh, Brown and Blair were in the middle of the most horrendous argument uh, which sort of creeped out into the public domain and the subject they'd given me to speak on was reconciliation <laughs> and in the crowd was Brown and Blair and all the cabinet ministers four o'clock in the afternoon my phone rang a journalist from the Times uh, Reverend Edwards I hear you were preaching to the Prime Minister today about reconciliation I said, no, I was preaching about reconciliation and the Prime Minister and uh, Mr. Brown happened to be in the congregation. So, were you encouraging the Prime Minister and Mr. Mr. Brown to be reconciled? No, I was preaching to a congregation about reconciliation and they happened to be there. But surely you must recognize that, you know, uh, they have been rather at each other's throats recently and such a message would really um, be very applicable to their situation, wouldn't it? Maybe, maybe not. But I was in a church preaching about reconciliation and the Prime Minister and Gordon Brown happened to be there and I'd be really quite disappointed and annoyed if the Times suggested that I was preaching to the Prime Minister about being reconciled to Gordon Brown. Next day in the Times, preacher admonishes Brown and Blair to be reconciled. Okay. So in days gone by, you know, you could have been sent to Australia for something like that. You could have been, you know. You could have been sent down under. Speaking. Is that, is that, is that a subject for debate? Okay. Uh, so gaining permission can be risky. Gaining permission for the first century church was risky every day. And the problem with Christians in the 21st century is that Christianity has spoiled Christians. And we think that Christian witness is about standing in the place of power and telling everybody else what not to do. Not even what to do, but what not to do. And our prophetic focus has been about telling the world what not to do. Very puritanical. You know, somebody once said that a Puritan, by definition, is somebody who suspects that someone somewhere is having a good time. The the second thing I want to say about permission to speak is that permission to speak only comes with added value. 
We gain permission to speak when we bring value to the issues of the day. I don't have time to read the text. But what made foreigners like Daniel and Joseph rise to prominence? It was because they had answers to the intractable and difficult questions of the day. Christians gain permission to speak when we bring answers to real issues. If Egypt is about to experience starvation, don't tell us how immoral we are. Tell us how to deal with the starvation. If the world is suffering from AIDS and HIV, don't tell us that we've sinned and therefore we deserve it. Tell us how to care for people with AIDS and HIV. If the world is going to starvation because we have some huge discussions about biofuel and the relationship between the global south's inability to pay for food and our concerns about rising fuel prices, let's have some answers to those questions. We gain permission to speak when in our local areas we see that there are some deep problems where our governments have no long-term or immediate solutions and we can marshal our resources and our wealth and our intellectual capital to provide answers to the questions and we gain permission to speak. Joseph emerges from prison to speak to Pharaoh because his dream provided an answer. And he gained permission. So, let's bring some value to our communities. Not remind them how bad they are. And I think we gain permission to speak. We gain permission to speak when we are involved in phenomena. I mentioned this before. In the miraculous. Have a look at Acts chapter 4. The man by the gate beautiful. You know, the first Christian sermon is in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. I think the first Christian apologetic is in Acts 4 where um, the man by the gate is healed silver and gold have we none etc. In the name of Jesus rise up and he's healed, he's dashing all over the place he creates a commotion and the authorities call the disciples and they say by what permission and in whose name have you done this? It's a question. So they have permission to speak. Why? Because a lame man has been made well. So, if we have a sick society, if Europe is sick, how do we see a God of miracle coming in which gives us the right to speak? Because the doctor will have to ask, how on earth did that happen to you? The neighbors will need to say, how comes you were bedridden for 20 years and now you're up and around shopping in the high streets? What has happened? Permission to speak. God has always used phenomena to open up the conversation. That's why John's gospel calls miracles signs and wonders. Because people wonder 
Wow. What does that sign mean? And miracles are never an end in themselves, never meant to be, but they're always a sign for a conversation. Permission to speak is about a community of faith who believes that God has the power, much more important than the power, God has the interest of the material world at heart. And he uses servants to open up doors of conversation through incredible acts of power which gives us permission to speak. I think the third thing I want to say, or the fourth thing, is that permission to speak comes to those who will fill the spiritual void. Remember the jailer in the middle of the earthquake in Acts 16 who asks Paul a question. What must I do to be saved? There's permission to speak. I don't know that Europe has ever been in such turmoil spiritually as it is now. Because a continent which has lost its soul and is looking for answers is not just economically and politically in transition. It is also spiritually in transition. This is why, although people across Europe have little confidence in institutions and organizational Christianity, it is still a deeply spiritual continent. You know that better than me. Many of you do that kind of engagement as a natural part of your ministry. I remember in the year 2000, the BBC did a massive survey across the UK. They called it the Soul of Britain survey. It's the biggest survey they'd done up to that point. And they'd asked particularly young people a whole number of questions seeking to position individuals um, uh, in terms of the social and, uh, and, and cultural developments across the UK. One of the questions was about spirituality. And they spoke to young people, people under 25 I think it was, about their understanding about spiritual Britain. And the young people complained that very often they thought their parents were not spiritual enough. You know? I don't think it's any accident that increasingly people are going on retreats, that monasticism is recurring again across Europe. Three weeks ago, a friend of mine who heads up World Vision in the UK, Charles Badenoch, said he was off to Teze for a week's retreat. And because they were over 40, they had to get special permission to go as a group of three or four guys to go for a retreat because most of the spaces are reserved for younger people. There is a spirituality. 65% of people in Britain are happy with paranormal activities. People will sign up to the Jedi party as their status in the electoral, electoral role. Now, we have an anti-institution, anti-religious Europe. We all know that. But we also know we have a pro-spiritual Europe in the ascendancy. A church which meets the deep spiritual needs of its community will, I suspect, gain permission to speak. One Sunday morning while I was listening to the preacher who was very good 
I rattled through my Bible to look at instances where permission to speak was given. I was amazed. I was amazed at how many texts in the book of Acts through the Gospels actually says, you have permission to speak. Uh, um, doing notes during a sermon is one of the things I do. Because something about some, listening to somebody else preach inspires me. I can actually prepare my sermon while I'm listening to you preach. If you stop me preparing my sermon while you're preaching, you are really in overdrive. You are preaching. If I have to stop and do that. But generally, I find, I find inspiration as I listen to the word of God from somebody else. So I went through and I was just amazed at how often I saw people from the Christian community being given permission to speak. Let me read you one of them. It's Acts 13 and verse 15 and 16. This is Paul um, uh, talking within the context of a synagogue. And they continued their journey and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Verse 15. After reading the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have any message of encouragement for the people, you can speak. I love that. I love that. If you've got anything useful to say, we want to hear you. That's basically what he's saying. Do you have something useful to say? Do you have something that's going to help us on this journey? Do you have something which is going to build up the community? Do you have something which is going to add value in your neighborhood? If you do, let's hear you. The church will receive permission to speak if we have something useful to say. It may well have been the same survey, Soul of Britain, I can't now quite remember. Or it may even have been a slightly earlier one. Where people across Britain said, it's not that we don't want to hear what the church has to say, it's just that we don't know what you're saying about poverty, about exclusion. And when they measured what the society were expecting, something like 80 to 90% in each case said, we do want to hear what the church has to say about poverty about the environment, about the big issues which occupies hours and hours and hours of time in corridors of power. Do you have any words of encouragement? You have permission to speak. I think the inference is otherwise, shut up. Um, and fifthly, we have permission to speak if we are a part of the intellectual inquiry. There is no requirement on the world's part that we become idiots for Jesus. We can be foolish for the gospel without being intellectually bankrupt. And that's the challenge we're faced with. But in intellectual discourse, I'm so pleased that increasingly... Christian witnesses stepping up to the mark. Hey, it's always been there. It's always been there. Somehow we have believed a societal lie which says Christian faith is sub rational, it's sub reasoning, 
it's less than intellectually rigorous. I'm glad there are people like Alistair McGrath and others who take on Richard Dawkins at his level and can win the order of the day. I'm pleased that universities and Bible colleges are increasingly rationalizing their existence for the world and locking in to intellectual discourse. This is what the apostles did again and again and again. As soon as Paul turned up in a town, off he went to the synagogue. Why? Because it was the center of community life, but that's where they had the intellectual bantering. That's where they had the intellectual jousting. That's where you saw that what we have is a reasoned faith. And we will gain permission to speak to the extent that we increasingly step away from anti-intellectualism. Christian church, especially Pentecostals, somehow think that, you know, you go to Bible college, you're going to backslide, so... You know, we won't do that. Or, we will educate people ourselves within the framework of our own insular denominational specifics. So we don't trust you to go to university. Please can we open a Bible school so we can tell you precisely what we want to tell you, but we won't actually expose you to the more rigorous intellectual challenges. We kind of do in internship education. That's fine. There is a place for internship education and I'm not decrying any local church or denomination which has its own frame of reference for educating its people. But that should never screen us off from being exposed to the high grade intellectual battlegrounds which are out there. That should never allow us to feel that we've got to insulate our people from rigorous intellectual inquiry. Because the Bible has been around for 2,000 years. It can handle it. We gain permission to speak when we are intellectually robust. Acts 17 and verse 18 and 19. May we learn more about this new teaching, they asked Paul. We gain permission to speak when we are willing to speak truth to power. And this is Paul before Agrippa. Agrippa said, I want to hear this man myself. In verse 1 of chapter 26, they say to Paul, it is permitted for you to speak. Permission to speak is, I think, far more critical to us than we have probably consciously thought. As I do the audition with you today, I want to draw my thoughts to a conclusion with a few um, final ideas I hope will be useful to you. I think um, what I'm really, really talking about is this, that permission to speak is far more radical than we might think at first glance. Because what it does is says, we have to remove the notions of power which comes with our thinking about ourselves. And maybe begin to think about influencing the world around us. Because we have to get consent. And we can't just barge into our culture. I think the second thing which it says to us is this. It takes away our arrogant superiority about the rest of the world. 
I think the third thing it says to us is that we have to redefine what church is. I was hoping to talk a little bit about citizenship, and I did last time I was here. But I think when we talk about permission to speak, we're actually revising what the church is. As we hear these things from time to time, the kind of issues you will deal with here in these conferences can be approached in two ways. You can either say, Mal has brought us together to hear some provocative people from the United Kingdom and elsewhere who have far too much to say and speak far too quickly for translators (laughs) to cope with. Or you can say, what's going on here is an attempt to redesign what church is. This is not just about adding new thoughts on. This is about God grabbing hold of the church for the 21st century and saying, I've got to think about church turned upside down, turned inside out, and radically redefined. And I'm thinking increasingly of churches as centers of citizenship. I think the next thing to say in conclusion is, this permission to speak establishes a neutral ground, not hostility. Have you noticed that in any of the accounts, I almost guarantee you, in any of the accounts you read, where the church or the people of God spoke beyond their culture, it was with respect and honor and dignity. Think of how Daniel spoke to a tyrant who did not believe in God. He spoke with honor. Think of how Joseph spoke. Listen to Paul before Agrippa. Listen to Paul before the town councillors. Listen to any Christian leader negotiating beyond their culture and you get respect. This is what Peter says. Pray for the emperor. Love the authorities. These are the people persecuting you. But if you are citizens, we do not go into the conversation as combatants. We go in as servants. And we gain permission to speak because we have not come in defiance of who they are, but we have come as representatives of the kingdom of God. And lastly, we gain permission to speak, and by doing so, we somehow mysteriously and incredibly become more godly as a movement. Because in seeking permission to speak, suddenly we find ourselves behaving precisely, precisely, precisely like the person who says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm looking for permission to speak. Hey, bless you, bless you.